There aren't strict rules on what is enforceable and what is not. Instead, it's up to a judge or a jury as to what's, quote, reasonable in time and geographic restriction. The general trend is that judges don't like to restrict people from working somewhere. Hey, this is Justin Harvey, your host of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My wife is an anesthesia resident, and I'm a financial planner, and I work with anesthesia and pain doctors as my clients. This podcast is designed to help the anesthesia community be informed about their careers, their finances, and more by taking important questions straight to the experts. Thanks for tuning in. This week, I'm talking to Jeff Sansweet, who's a healthcare attorney in Philadelphia. This is a conversation I've been trying to have for some time now, and I think that the content of today's discussion is going to be really helpful in thinking about things like employment agreements, enforceability of non-compete clauses, entity selection for setting up a practice, and lots of other important things with regards to legal questions surrounding the practice of pain and anesthesia. I learned a ton in speaking with Jeff, and I hope that you do as well. Note, the usual disclaimers will apply for this episode, so the content of this discussion should not be construed as legal or tax advice. Jeff is an attorney, but there are many state-specific issues addressed, and you should have a qualified attorney familiar with your state and your situation address your specific legal concerns. In addition, we recorded this episode outside on a beautiful sunny afternoon, so there might be a little bit of background noise. And with that out of the way, now for this week's show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia Success. I'm here with my friend Jeff Sansweet. Jeff is a healthcare attorney based out of the Philadelphia area, and uh, we've had some great conversations recently pertaining to helping early career physicians with some of the legal questions and issues that they run into in the course of uh, growing their clinical practice. So I'm really grateful that Jeff has given us a little bit of his time here on this sunny day. We're sitting outside drinking a beer and having a conversation about helping um, physicians address their legal needs during the uh, the years in which they're building their career. So Jeff, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Justin. Thanks for having me and hello to all you listeners out there. Let me just tell you a little bit about my background That'd and how I got into this business. I um, went to uh, University of Pennsylvania undergrad. I was an accounting major and then went on to Villanova Law School and right out of law school, joined a, a small firm that mostly represented doctors and dentists. And a little more than 33 years later, I'm still at the firm. Now I'm, I'm basically known as a healthcare attorney. That phrase didn't even exist back in 1985. But I represent physicians from residency all the way through retirement and thereafter. I review employment agreements for residents and fellows help them also become partners when, when the time comes and review all those documents, represent a lot of medical and dental groups also, and help them hire the physicians and dentists and help them structure the buy-ins and buy-outs. Also have helped many physicians and dentists buy and sell practices, mergers, also help in the real estate field with leases, do a little bit of labor law employee issues. I also have my master's in taxation, so I can help with any tax or employee benefit issues that arise. Basically an attorney that can help physicians and dentists um, with any and all of their legal needs. And the nice thing about it too is that because I have so much experience dealing in these matters that, that I, I kind of know the language, know the issues more than say a typical corporate attorney or contract attorney that doesn't really know the field. So that's 
that's where I'm coming from. That makes a lot of sense. So it's, I think it's great, you know, that from the very beginning of the career to the conclusion of the career with the, the buy-in and the sale of the practice, you kind of manage the beginning, the end, and everything in between. So what I want to do is kind of unpack what are the, what are the legal needs of a physician? So especially, you know, this podcast is designed to address the needs of anesthesiologists and pain physicians. And so those are two obviously different specialties that in the legal context are going to have slightly different needs. So let's talk about like an early career pain physician, for example. You know, you're, you're wrapping a residency and fellowship and you're yep. starting out in practice on your own. You're trying to make a decision of maybe buying into a group and understanding what does it look like for me to buy into a group? How do I know if I'm getting a good deal? How do I know if I even need an attorney for these things? How, how would you kick off that conversation with somebody who's having that internal dialogue? That's a good question. I mean, you, you definitely should engage an attorney. Obviously, that's a self-serving comment of mine because that's how I make a living. But um, whether you're joining a practice as an employee or independent contractor or starting your own practice or um, becoming a partner in a practice, there's a myriad of, of legal issues. And, you know, after all the years and you spend and the money you've spent on your on your medical education, um, you really owe it to yourself to get uh, a good group of advisors, you know, including an attorney in the healthcare field, including an accountant who knows healthcare, and including a financial planner, an insurance person. Mm -hmm. um, you owe it to yourself to 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 do that. Now, when it, whenever you are engaged by an early career physician, do you find that you are coming in as as part of a team that this physician is assembling, or? Are you maybe sometimes the first person with like the boots on the ground, like they need you maybe before they need an accountant and a, and a financial planner? It's a good question. It kind of depends on what they're doing. If they're if they're going to become if they're signing their first contract as an employee of a of a private practice or of, or of a hospital or a surgery center or institution, um, many times I am the first person that they talk to, um, and. They don't necessarily need an accountant yet, or they don't think they do, or they don't necessarily need a financial planner, an insurance person yet. Uh, so many times I am the first person to, uh, and I review the employment agreement. If they're looking to, to set up their own practice or buy into a practice, um, then you need all of that, like right away. I mean, you definitely need a good accountant to give you tax advice. You definitely need a financial planner and, you know, to deal with, um, financial issues and an insurance person if it's not the same person to, mm -hmm. to deal with disability insurance and life insurance and to, to kind of somewhat coordinate everything but if you're just signing an employment agreement and you haven't really made any money yet and you don't have any money to invest and you don't have, you're not married you're single so you're not that worried about protecting your family or your spouse in case something happens you know you might just need an attorney to begin with. Mm -hmm. I, I work more in conjunction with other advisors when you're be buying into a practice or becoming a partner rather than, say, just signing an employment agreement. I mean, you, you may still have the need for a CPA and, and a financial planner, but it doesn't necessarily have to be as coordinated as much mm -hmm. until you're kind of moving up in the world and, and owning something. Makes sense. So let's take a concrete example and kind of lay out the, the landscape here and you can talk us through the legal considerations. So say I'm a, I'm a pain physician, I'm 33, I just wrapped up fellowship and maybe I've had a, a job with another private practice that didn't work out and I'm looking to really have, have one that's gonna work out and I wanna invest my time with a, 
a practice that I think is gonna be a good fit for the long term. So I'm with a smaller group, maybe there's two other doctors and they're bringing me in as like a partnership track potentially and I'm looking at an employment agreement and I'm looking at this sort of potential partnership opportunity and I come to you and I say, Jeff, yep. I feel like I need an attorney, I don't know why, but I think that you probably have some expertise that you could offer here. What kinds of questions are you asking of me and of these partner, the, the other prospective partners in order to make sure that I'm as informed as I can be? Boy, that's, that's a good question. You got a half hour? Yeah, we, we got all the <laughs> no, time. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. answer it. So, a couple things. So, first of all, in your so in your scenario, you're already you're working somewhere, and you're obviously thinking about going somewhere else. Yeah. So, one thing that you that I would ask, and 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 an important issue is, do you have a non compete in your current employment agreement that might restrict you from going to this other practice? Obviously, if you're moving out of state, or you know, it's not an issue. But if you're um, the other practice that you're looking at more favorably, you think, um, is within a restricted area, that's a problem. And, and I'll explain why. I mean, you may, many doctors are under the false impression that restrictive covenants aren't enforceable. You know, they, they, you know somebody told them that at, at, a, at a, you know, bar or whatever, or they heard that. And that may be true, Ultimately, but it also could act as a deterrent, and, and I'll explain what, what I mean. So let's say you're working somewhere and you have a restrictive covenant that says if you leave, you can't work within a 10-mile radius of, of this office. And the practice that you're thinking about joining is, you know, nine and a half miles away. So it's, it's close. And, and, you know, you've had, you've gotten the advice from somebody that, you know, they're not really competitive, you know, they have different drawing areas. It's really a completely different location. If it went to court, you'd be fine. So don't worry about it. That's not really the best advice because what, what could happen is the other, what'll happen is this, the practice that you're thinking about joining will most likely ask you if you have a non-compete you kind of have to answer honestly and say yes and you're um, saying it's not best to start off a relationship by a lying lie. to no your not at all well, sometimes okay. people don't disclose everything yeah. and it's not exactly lying but the problem is this if the practice you want to go to consults with their attorney and they have a good attorney their attorney will ask well does, does this person have a non-compete yes you know what what's the parameters does it fall within it yes then that attorney may say to that group, don't even talk to that person, don't hire that person, because we could get in the middle of a lawsuit. There's a, a tort, at least in Pennsylvania, called interference with contractual relationships. And that practice could get sued for hiring you if it knows that you have a non-compete that could ultimately be violated. So even if ultimately in a lawsuit you might win, meaning the judge may say, you know, yeah, you know what, nine and a half miles, it's it's far enough away, even though the contract says 10 miles, we're going to not enforce it, you're fine. The problem is the other practice may not even, you may not get to court because the other practice just says, sorry, we're not going to talk to you. Hmm. So that's one impediment if you have a non-compete. Assuming that's not an issue, okay, so then I would ask the doctor who's thinking about doing something else, like, why aren't you happy where you are? Why aren't you pursuing your current deal? And if they say, well, I don't like the way the, the, 
the practices run. I don't like the owners. They're not offering me partnership. I'm not making enough money. All of those reasons. It's probably um, some of those reasons or more. Right. So, so then I would, you know, then obviously, um, if the new group has has provided you with a employment agreement to look at, we would go over that. Uh, if they haven't yet and they're just in the talking stages, then clearly the key issues are. Are you going to be an, a, a partner right away? Mm-hmm. Are you going to have to? Are you going to be an employee? Is there going to be some sort of honeymoon period of six months or a year or two before you become a partner in this practice? And what are the parameters of partnership? You know, are you going to be able to buy in? Uh, uh, is there no buy-in, which would be awesome, right. or or is there going to be a buy-in? And if so, what's the amount? How is it structured for tax purposes? Over what period of time can you pay? What sort of ownership interest will you have? Will it be equal? You know, will you have an equal vote? How old are these other guys that you're joining? Are they all ready to retire and leave you with everything, which could be good or could be not good? You know, do they have significant buyouts? And the biggest one is, or one of the biggest ones is how do we divide the pie? Is it done, if if it's, you know, a pain practice, is it done purely on productivity? Mm -hmm. Eat what you kill, or is it equally? Or is it some combination of that? Is it, you know, we split 70% of the pie by productivity and 30% of the pie by ownership? Mm-hmm. You know, there's all sorts of variations. Is there, a, is there a common setup for that as far as maybe a, a component that is incentive-based for the physician specifically? And then a component that is like a profit share, or how do you? How have you typically seen that divide? Yeah, it's a good. It, it's tough to say typical in right. this situation because there's a lot of variations. In my experience in the in the pain world, the groups that I've seen, most of them have have leaned more towards equality than productivity. Hmm. But there really is no one way of doing it that there really is no most common way of doing it and things change right and each practice is unique right and the situation varies too because some you know maybe some practices allow people to to work four days a week and you know maybe some work three days a week and some work five days a week and you know maybe some do different types of procedures that use more overhead Right. So you really have to analyze each situation. And sometimes it's just the, um, it's kind of the environment and the history and the philosophy of a group. Mm-hmm. And maybe, it, you know, there's certain groups that feel like we don't want to compete with each other. We all work around the same. We've all known each other. We trust each other. We all put in the same amount of time. We all do similar procedures. So we just want to split everything equally. We don't want to go nuts with, well, you're a little faster or you, you know, and where, where others are completely the opposite, completely yeah. opposite. Others are, you know what? If you want to take eight weeks vacation and I'm taking three weeks vacation because I'm a workaholic, we're splitting everything by productivity. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. We, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. So a lot of it boils down to the philosophy of the group. And typically a, a well-functioning group, people have this same philosophy. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you make a great point in pointing out, not only do you want to have a group that clinically you align with the way, their methodology and their practice and that and their ethics, but also from like a practice of business and ethos of, I mean, the finances standpoint, it's, it's good exactly. to sort that out ahead of time. And honestly, that's difficult to do, I would imagine. Yeah. And I've seen like, for example, there was a 
radiology group that that they allow 12 weeks vacation. Hmm. I mean, that's just, I, I, it's unbelievable, but that's their philosophy. They could obviously work more, probably make more money by not taking so much time off and, and need one, one or two less doctors, but that's, that's just the philosophy of that particular group. Yeah. Whereas others, you know, you hear of doctors that are workaholics and take two weeks off because mm -hmm. that's, they just, they can't relax on vacation. They, right. That's their whole life. Right. They don't, they have kids, they don't have family, they don't have other interests. So it's not always just about the money. Yeah. So let's talk a, bit, a minute for about the buy-in. So yep. there's, you know, there's a partnership track. We kind of put that in air quotes. Like it basically means you come in and make less money, right? Or potentially, or you're being vetted for partnership and there's a, a period of testing. Correct. Often during this time, your salary, if the market rate for your, for your skills is 400, maybe you're making 275 for a few years. And that is in essence, some sweat equity. Correct. Potentially sweat equity. Correct. Into buying into the business. So talk about the mechanics of that and sure. how you might counsel somebody who's trying to vet that process. Sure. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the most fun things I, I enjoy doing. I mean, reviewing an employment agreement's okay, but negotiating a buy-in deal and looking at the numbers and figuring out if it makes sense, I, I enjoy. Mm -hmm. What can I say? I'm strange. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you, you, you gave a pretty good example of, let's say, you know, you're a pain management doc and you work for two years, because typically it's a two or three year, sometimes even four years until partnership. You see variations, but that's the two and three is the most typical uh, if you're like right out of fellowship. And let's say you have a guaranteed salary of $300 a year for the first two years with like no bonus, let's mm -hmm. say. And then comes time for, and, and they like you and you want to become a partner. They want you to become a partner. Typically, there's a the buying consists of two different components and structured from a tax standpoint in, in a couple different ways to make it favorable for, for you, the employee. One is there may be some out-of-pocket payment for your shares, if it's a corporation or your membership interest, if it's an LLC. And that out-of-pocket payment may be tied just to the value of the equipment and the furniture and the hard assets of the office, which may not be that high. Mm -hmm. um, and then typically the, the, the larger amount is for quote, goodwill mm -hmm. and potentially accounts receivable if that's part of the buy-in. And just describe and, what goodwill is. Yeah, goodwill is basically what a willing buyer and seller agree that the practice is worth over and above the tangible assets and the accounts receivable. Mm -hmm. It's the fudge factor, it's the subjective amount, it's the fact that the practice is known in the community mm -hmm. and, the, and the office is known and the location is known and all the, the goodwill that the, the doctors that have owned the practice have built up over the years. And that's true with any business, not just with the medical practice. So it's the subjective value of the, of the business. Sure. And that can be valued in many different ways, and that's typically what's negotiable. I mean, I've seen pain practices and anesthesia groups and other specialties where there is no goodwill buy-in. It's zero, meaning, you know, we feel like, like you mentioned, sweat equity. You worked for a couple of years at 300. You know, the partners were making 450 or 500. And when we retire, we don't really expect a big buyout. So in effect, you know, maybe you, you pay us each $20,000 for shares and day one of year three or four, you're a partner and you share fully in the profits and compensation the way we do. Mm -hmm. So I have seen that. It's not that common though. Most okay. of the time there is some sort of goodwill payment. 
it varies significantly. It could be based upon a percentage of the gross collections of the practice. It could be based upon a percentage of the net income of the practice. It could be completely subjective. It could just be that you're the eighth person to buy in and everyone that's bought in before you has paid $100,000 for goodwill and we're never going to change it. Hmm. And that's the way it is. It doesn't make any sense, but that is what it is. Okay. And in order for me to advise whether whatever the proposal is is fair, you know, I want to find out like what have they done in the past? Is this does this mirror past buy-ins? I want to see the fin- last two or three years financials. Uh-huh. You know, you and can. And to be clear, if I'm the physician and I'm asking these questions, I'm asking for the financials, and I'm going to come to you, yes. my attorney advisor, and hand hand them over. Uh, and have you vet that correct situation? And you can, and 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 they often have their accountant look at the financials too, because I'm not an accountant. I can't, I can't, I don't look at it to see if there's something funky going on or something's out of whack. I look at it to say, okay, what are the gross collections been? What's the overhead? What are the doctors taking home? Right. That's mostly what I look at. Is there debt there? So I don't look at it from the standpoint that an accountant necessarily would have. Wait, there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. But I'll look at the financials. And and then see what the proposal is and what to give you a concrete example. Let's just say that on average, the doctors, the owners of the of the pain practice make a half a million dollars a year and they value the goodwill as 100 percent of a year's net. So they value the goodwill at five hundred thousand dollars per doctor. Mm -hmm. So when you buy in, you have to pay five hundred thousand dollars. Typically, you don't have to go to the bank and write a check. If you're buying a practice, like especially in the dental field, you do. But if you're buying into a pain practice, you don't have to go to the bank and borrow $500,000. Instead, what often is done is is you give up, say, $100,000 of income over a five-year period. So instead of making $300 a year and bumping up to $500 a year, you know, maybe you make $400 a year for five years and it's a pre-tax way of buying in so you're not getting the 500 and paying 100 you're just getting 400 and paying tax on 400 so it it only gets taxed once correct it's pre-tax basically that what and so you'll make 400 and the other doctor will make 600 right so they pay tax on the extra 100 okay it's a little bit aggressive from an irs standpoint but I've never seen it be a problem in over 30 years. Okay. And you have to structure the contract right and word it right. But that's an example of how it could work. And in that situation, it's not a bad deal. Okay. Now, in, in other situations, and I've had several of these recently, where I've told doctors, and this is rare, that I'll tell a doctor, don't do this deal. I usually say, look, we can negotiate it the best that we can, make it the fairest we can, and then you have to decide, do I want to become a partner? Do I want to stay an employee for a while longer or forever? And that, and for some people, that's fine. Right. Or do you want to leave and go somewhere else? Right. But recently, I've had a couple deals where I specifically tell the doctor, you can't do this. This is a terrible deal. Mm-hmm. And that's a situation like this. So let's say you're making 300 a year as the pain partner, the pain associate. And then the, the proposal is that you buy in and the buy-in say a million dollars. And because of that, and the way you have to pay it, instead of making 300 a year, you're gonna make 200 a year for five years, let's say. Hmm. 
And I have seen deals like that that are absolutely wrong, don't make any sense, because in the medical field, for a buy-in to be reasonable, okay, because it's not a it's not a, a public company, it's not widgets, you're not it's completely different. You're making money based upon your labor for the most part. And pain practices don't have a lot of necessary ancillaries or other staff that are making money for them that it makes it really worth that much more. So if you're going to make way less money as a partner for a long period of time and in this situation too, there's a couple older doctors that are ready to retire and want a significant buyout, it's a terrible deal and it's unfair and it doesn't make sense. If you have a deal where you go from say 300 a year and maybe you go gradually 325, 375, 425, 450, that's reasonable Mm -hmm. after factoring in the buy-in that's much more reasonable Mm -hmm. so it's not just the buy-in it's how it's structured from a tax standpoint it's what it's going to mean from a net income division standpoint and what it's going to cost you when the other doctors leave okay so it's a combination of all of that and a lot of it's math Mm -hmm. you know when you're looking at the math the other thing that's super important is what say you have in things mm-hmm. and this this change is based upon how many doctors there are you know if they're if you're one of two it's different than if you're one of 15 partners yeah and that's how voting and governance issues are extremely important and i've seen it it's very common where you're maybe like a treated as like a junior partner yeah. with less of a vote or no right. vote for some finite period of time before mm-hmm. you have an equal say with that whole concept is is a big issue for a lot of people okay something you mentioned earlier that i want to come back to so you talked about in considering a buy-in there's an out-of-pocket payment potentially in combination with like a a decreased salary for a period of time and this is essentially purchasing a split of hard asset meaning the equipment the goods right the stuff you can put your hands on as well as the goodwill right so i don't want to spend too long here because our listeners' eyes are going to glaze over, but I'm curious, <laughs> from a tax standpoint, right. is there a difference between buying assets and or buying goodwill? And is that something you should try to, do you have a say in, in the tax treatment at the purchase? And, and how should you optimally configure that if you could sure. write your own ticket? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this depends upon if the practice has done other transactions before, they're going to want to keep them consistent right. from the tax standpoint and the reason for that. If you're like number two, then you have more negotiating power because it hasn't been done a certain way before, in which case the best thing for you is to keep the out-of-pocket payment as low as possible because what happens is if you pay $20,000 for your shares, that is not deductible. You can't, so you're paying with after-tax dollars. You get what's called basis in your share. So when you sell them down the road, you don't have to pay tax on what you get back. So the more you can allocate to the goodwill, to the reduction in compensation, the better for you because you're not, it's it's Mm pre-tax. And on the flip side, the reason why the practice won't necessarily agree to that is because from their standpoint, from the owner's standpoint, Whatever they receive, if they get 10000 or 20000 for their shares, they either recover their basis tax-free or they're paying lower capital gains tax on that amount. Whereas on the salary difference portion of it, when they make more income, mm-hmm. they're paying tax at the higher ordinary income rates. From their standpoint, it's better to do it the other way. Makes so sense. that's why there's give and take between the two. 
But if, if you're negotiating a buy-in and they've done three or four buy-ins over the last 10 years, it's going to be treated consistently from a tax standpoint because it basically needs to be in case right. the IRS ever audits them yeah. or if they have the same accountant that they've had. So you're you're not often able to influence the, the structure, but sometimes you are able to influence the allocation between the two. Sometimes instead of in my example 20,000 for the for the stock and 500,000 of salary reduction, maybe you pay 100,000 for the stock and 420 for the you know, so it's not necessarily set in stone. Okay. So you usually do have some bargaining power there. Okay. Great. Very helpful. Let's let's pivot, and okay. I want to talk a little bit about setting up a new partnership and or operating agreement. So maybe me and a couple of my buddies we just finished fellowship, and we are yep. like the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed idealists who are going to go out and conquer the world, and yep. we're going to just roll up our sleeves and pound the pavement for five years and build an amazing enterprise from scratch. Okay. And we want to lay a solid foundation legally from an entity standpoint and from a, you know, just making sure we cross our T's and dot our I's. And we come to you, and again, this is what we say. There's two of us, or maybe yep. three, yep. and we want to do it right. Okay. What kind of documents do we need? Yep. How should we organize in order to protect ourselves and optimize for taxes? Very, very good life? question. First, let me start by saying you're nuts for considering doing that. But right. that's that's your that's, that's up to you. Point. So yep. assuming you're very entrepreneurial and, and don't mind taking risk and you're business-like and that that's great. Congratulations. Yep. So the first thing is don't go to LegalZoom and set up your own entity <laughs> because I've had people do that and screw it up. Yeah. Either screw up the name, screw up the type of entity, and all they're saving is a couple hundred bucks. So don't set up the entity on your own. Don't use an operating agreement from the internet. Okay. Okay, that's my first <laughs> advice. Okay, so assuming you haven't done that. You're saying so, if you hope to make millions of dollars a year, you should pay a couple dollars yes, for legal advice? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. So some of this is state-specific, okay, because there's different nuances from a liability and tax standpoint in different states. But let me just, just assume for now we're in Pennsylvania, and my advice probably won't be that different in other states, but each state is a little bit different. So... The first thing is if, you know, there's two or three of you, um, you don't want to set up a partnership. Nobody does that anymore. There's liability issues. So that's not even a consideration. You really have two considerations. One is a corporation and one is a limited liability company. And just about every state recognizes limited liability company status these days. The reason why you want to be one or the other is for liability purposes. And let me dispel something that you may not realize um, that people don't, don't understand necessarily. When you set up an LLC or a corporation, you don't protect yourself from your own malpractice. You can never protect yourself from your own malpractice from personal liability. So if there's two or three of you and you screw up and somebody sues you, you obviously have insurance. They're gonna sue you, they're gonna sue the entity, and both of you should have malpractice insurance. But if the recovery is in excess of your coverage, which is very unusual, but let's say it's a $10 million verdict and you have $3 million of insurance, the entity will not protect the individual who's committed the malpractice, so they can go after you individually. What the entity protects is your partners. Hmm. So if there's two or three of you and you were on vacation and your partner screwed up, 
the one on vacation can't be held personally liable for malpractice if you're set up as a limited liability company or a corporation. So they're not going to have to write a check for damages, but is this going to impact their entity, the viability of the business? It should not because okay. the business has ins- the business should have malpractice insurance and the doctors individually. It's okay. all part of so typically it, you don't see verdicts in excess of the insurance, but if but if if they are um, they typically would go after the doctor individually on on top of that. So you might have to write a check. Okay. So you can't protect yourself from your own malpractice. But the key is you protect yourself from your partner's malpractice and you protect yourself from the malpractice of an employee, a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner or an associate physician you have. If they commit the malpractice, you can never be on the hook personally for that. The other liability protection you have is if, you know, down the road you sign a lease or a loan with a bank and you're not asked to personally guarantee it, then you can't be held liable for that too. Hmm. Okay, so from a liability standpoint, LLCs and and corporations are the same. Okay, so you're gonna be one or the other. From a tax standpoint, based upon different changes in the law, they're pretty much the same too. Uh, years ago, there were, there were big differences, but now, most of the tax advantages are the same whether you're a limited liability company or corporation. So you're kind of like, well, which one should I do? And some of it comes down to mechanics, some of it comes down to CPA preferences, and some of it comes down to costs. For example, in Pennsylvania, if you register as a limited liability company and you're a pain practice or any medical practice, you have to register as a professional limited liability company. It's a subset of limited liability companies. And when limited liability companies first came into existence in Pennsylvania, there was an annual fee payable to the state. It's just a registration fee of $200 a year per member. No big deal. Who cares? The $200 has gone up every year. It's currently $520 a year. So it's not nothing. So in order to be a professional limited liability company in Pennsylvania, each member has to fork up 520 bucks. Hmm. Okay. If you're a professional corporation in Pennsylvania, there's no annual fee. So you save a few dollars. Okay. That's one difference. One other difference is if you're an LLC, a limited liability company, the owners don't get W-2s. They don't get paychecks. They get draws and distributions without income taxes withheld. So they have to make quarterly payments and it's a little more complicated, okay? If you're a corporation, you actually are also employees of the corporation as owners. So you get paychecks with withholdings. So you can set a salary of say $200,000 a year and the taxes will be taken out for you. You don't have to worry about that. And then you periodically pay bonuses or S-corp distributions. So it's a little bit different from a mechanical standpoint. Some accountants prefer one over the other. You can actually, to make it more complicated, do a hybrid. You can set up a limited liability company, but elect to be treated as an S corporation for tax purposes. And there's some accountants that love doing that. Yeah, that's how I'm set up at Quantify. There you go. So, and for our law firm, for example, was set up many years ago and it's a a C corporation, not an S corporation. And just quickly, C versus S is just a tax election. And anybody setting up 
a business these days, a medical business these days, will want to be an S corporation for a lot of reasons, not a C corporation. Our law firm happens to be a C corporation, but it's kind of like a dinosaur. And the negatives of being C corporation we deal with, and it's not a big deal. But if you're setting up a, if you go with professional corporation these days as a new entity, you clearly want to make an S corporation election to avoid issues at the end of the year and to avoid double taxation problems if you sell the business down the road to some private equity company or something Mm -hmm. like that. So the bottom line is you really have two choices, limited liability company or a professional corporation that elects S corporation status. And for the most part, it's a toss up and, you know, talk to your legal advisor, talk to your accountant Mm -hmm. to help you decide, you know, which one to choose. So we're going to have an operating agreement for that entity. What, what are all the organizing documents needed? They're called different things in different states. Okay. But for, for example, in Pennsylvania, if you set up an LLC, a limited liability company, it's called a certificate of organization. It's a simple document. You can file it online in Pennsylvania. Your lawyer can do it for you. There's a filing fee, I think, of 125 bucks. Extremely simple name, address, what the business is doing, and you're done. You file it online, you get a certificate like a week later. If you're setting up a corporation, it's articles of incorporation and a docketing statement, both of which, once again, you can do online, very simple, $125 filing fee, and you're done. Very simple. You also want to um, get a tax ID number, an employer identification number through the IRS. You can do that online. You get it immediately. Very simple. Then from a documentation standpoint, if you're an LLC, you need an operating agreement. It's basically a partnership agreement, but it's not called a partnership agreement because you're not a partnership. You're a limited liability company, so it's called an operating agreement. And in that operating agreement, you deal with issues like governance and vote and how you bring in new partners and what happens if somebody dies or is disabled or retires and how you withdraw, how much notice you have to give, how you expel a partner. All of those things are typically dealt with in an operating agreement. Um, And you should have that in place before you actually start operating. Because I've seen issues where I, I have a client it happens to be a dental practice, but they, um, for whatever reason, I didn't represent them then, but they were in a rush. They were buying this practice together because the, the doctor was disabled and they, they bought the practice and some lawyer who didn't know what they were doing quickly put together some agreement that they didn't even really understand or go through. They ended up signing a draft red line version And now I'm helping them. I've been trying to help them for the last six months agree on what they really agreed to. And now they're arguing whether or not the one they signed that was black line is actually legal or enforceable. And I think they're going to end up splitting up. So get your ducks in order before you like buy a practice, set up a practice, get that agreement signed. And you can get one lawyer to represent the group if you want. But you can also each individually get your own lawyer to look at it from your standpoint. Mm. Now, to backtrack for a second, if you set up a corporation as opposed to a limited liability company, and I probably see, I would say for new entities forming, it's almost 70-30 limited liability company over corporations these days. That's kind of the trend. 
But if you set up a corporation, the document, it's not called an operating agreement. You will typically have at least three documents. You will have bylaws, which are somewhat canned, but you'll have bylaws dealing with voting and meetings. Mm -hmm. You'll each have employment agreements, even though you're owners, you're actually employees. You'll have employment agreements that talk about how you're compensated, how much notice you have to give to to leave, how you could be fired, whether or not you're going to have a restrictive covenant in your agreements, scheduling issues, location issues, all those types of things. And then you'll have a third agreement, either called a buy-sell agreement or a shareholders agreement Mm. that will deal with what happens if somebody dies or is retired and how they get bought out and some voting issues and how you bring in new partners. So all the same things you'll have in an operating agreement, but it's broken down into three different documents because of the way things are structured. So if I come to you and I'm one of these, one of two physicians starting this practice, we're going to pick one of those two sets of documents. Correct. Before we hit the ground running. Correct. And then once the LLC is set up or, you know, whichever one we go with, we're going to, in the name of the LLC, sign the lease and get Correct. credit cards to go buy the equipment Correct. And, and all that stuff. That's actually a good point to, to bring out in terms of signing the lease because I've seen this happen. Make sure you do sign the lease in the name of the entity. Okay. And when you sign it, unless you're going to have to personally guarantee it, which if it's a new venture, you probably will. But if you ever sign a lease where you don't have to personally guarantee it, Sign in the entity's name so you can't be held personally liable. Because right. I have a client who actually, unfortunately, he was a pediatrician and he wasn't doing that well and he declared bankruptcy. And he signed a lease and the lease was in the name of the entity. But on the signature line, it just had his name and it didn't say president. Okay. And, the, and the landlord tried to hold him personally responsible. He declared bankruptcy for the corporation. Sorry. The landlord tried to hold him personally liable, and he got, I, I'm not a litigator, but he got a, a litigator to help, and he ultimately won the case. Mm. But if he had just put president on there, it would have helped. Wow. So just make sure when when you sign the lease, you know, you're, the entity's listed and the, and the officer name is listed on there. But in almost any new venture, you're going to have to personally guarantee it just like with a, if you get a bank loan, if you get a loan for you know two hundred thousand dollars to set up the practice, yeah. almost all the time, all the partners are going to have to sign a personal guarantee. But if you've been in business five years, ten years, then you shouldn't have to. Whether you know in a new lease or a construction loan or a line of credit, you typically shouldn't have to sign a personal guarantee. In which case, you know if for some reason the, the entity went under, mm-hmm. you couldn't be held personally responsible. Okay. Makes sense. So very helpful. So we spent a lot of time talking about the pain physicians. Let's talk a little bit about an anesthesiologist who might want to hire you. So one of the, I recently interviewed um, in an, it'll be in probably a prior released episode by the time this one goes live, um, a gentleman who does locums placement. So physicians who do locum tenens work, they do, they're often self-employed. They will work for a short, you know, part-time stints essentially all over the place. And the context for the legal needs there are pretty different than we're not, you know, we're not forming a an, uh, an LLC with a, another physician necessarily. We're we're just we're a sole operator, and we want to make sure we're legally protected and we have what we need from a an entity and or liability standpoint. Okay. So, if I'm that anesthesiologist who is making a great income but doing it in a locum's context hmm. as an independent contractor, how might you and I interact? Okay. That's a good question. 
I have reviewed Locum's contracts. In fact, I just had a problem with one recently, so mm. I, I can explain that to you. Sure, but yeah, yeah it's, it is a lot simpler. And I, I would, to be honest with you, most people that sign Locum's agreements don't get a lawyer mm -hmm. because the agreement is typically canned, won't be changed. Um, but let, let me give you some insight on that. First of all, if, if it's something you're gonna do on a regular basis, and it's not just for a couple months in between jobs, but it's something for whatever reason you like to do, want to do, don't want to commit to a place for a couple years or whatever. It doesn't hurt to set up a limited liability company and make that be the contractor, but it's not, it's not really crucial because you don't have any employees and you know, you're still potentially liable for your own malpractice. Right. So I, I, unless you're doing other things besides just doing locum, I probably wouldn't bother setting up an entity and just be an independent contractor individually. Okay. But the, the, the locum contract, even though it's typically canned and you can't do anything about it, one thing you want to make sure is that you're not committing, that they're not going to tell you you committed to something unless you've committed to it in writing. Mm -hmm. Because I just looked at one, okay, yep. it was a particular co contract where it was right, it was written in the contract. If you verbally accept an assignment, then you've accepted it. And then there are all these parameters in terms of, well, if you verbally accept it, and then we send you the written details of the compensation and the, and the location, the hours, if you don't turn it down in writing within like 10 days, we've assumed you've accepted it. Wow. Okay. So it's pretty stringent. That is stringent. It is stringent. And what happened was my client um, was a nice, nice woman. But so she's, just so, just so uh, I understand, the client would have signed an agreement with the locums company at the beginning that said, I agree to these terms with regards to getting new employment. And the correct. terms of that employment were, if you agree verbally and we send you a, a term sheet and you don't sign it after a certain period of time, it's implicit agreement. And then it's a formal legal exactly. engagement at that point. Exactly. That is that's it's unusual. That's the, the only one I've ever seen like that, but it, it was there. And what happened was she, I'm not sure what to believe necessarily because I don't have all the details, but she says that they told her it was going to be like eight to 10 patients a day and no call. And then that's what they verbally told her. Mm -hmm. So she said, sure. And then took them away. They never really sent her anything in writing. And all of a sudden it turned into, instead of eight to 10 patients a day, like 30 patients a day with call every other. And she says she never committed to it in writing or by email. And now they're hassling her and telling her you committed and so on and so forth. So I literally today, I helped her write an email back to them basically saying I never committed. You know, I verbally didn't say okay to this. Right. And in any event, the contract allowed her to terminate on 30 days notice, terminate an assignment, and she wasn't going to start for another 35 days. So I think she'll be okay. okay. But the takeaway is you probably should have somebody take a quick look at the locum's agreement. They're yeah. typically two or three pages long. You might be able to change something, but at least you'll be able to understand it. Because a lot of my clients that I get that call me that have a problem with a contract, it's because they never understood it to begin with. Right. So the main thing is to understand it. So to know that if there's some onerous provision like that in your locums agreement, that you make sure you don't verbally commit to anything in that example until you really 
until you actually get something in, you know, it's so easy with email now. There's no reason why you can't get an email confirming that. Yeah. So the really the locum thing is really just to, you know, run it by a lawyer. It'll probably take the lawyer 20 minutes to a half hour to look at it. You might be able to change something. You might not. Um, So that's in the context of a contract review. There's not really an entity or other legal. Not not really. I mean, I don't see any reason to set up an entity. I know some people do. They like to, you know, XYZ LLC. It looks cool. They can tell their friends they have an LLC. Yeah. You know, you could set up a separate bank account. You could run stuff through it. But if you set up an LLC yourself, most likely you're going to be taxed as, as, as a flow-through entity, meaning you'll do a Schedule C. Mm-hmm. You'll report it on Schedule C as a sole proprietor. But you would do that anyway. Right if you didn't set up the LLC. So from a tax standpoint, there's no difference. So I just don't really see any reason to do it. And in my experience, you know, in that particular context, it's a client who's leaving one hospital and looking for work. So she doesn't, you know, she might be a locum for two or three years and then just retire. Mm -hmm. She might do it for two or three months and then sign an employment agreement somewhere. So it's not permanent locums, but I still, even if you're doing that, on a regular basis, I don't see any need to set up an entity. So, so you mentioned earlier with restrictive covenants. Um, this is this would be like a non-compete, colloquially, or right. the inability to work for a competitor if you leave a certain organization. Uh, this would be part of the contract that you sign with your employment agreement. Uh, I know this is an area in which you're an expert. So, talk a little bit about what is a restrictive covenant. When are they mm-hmm. enforceable or not enforceable? When should you be concerned or not concerned? And how should a physician think about this in the context of a new employment agreement? Sure. Well, first of all, the fact that restrictive covenants or covenants not to compete exist at all is a, is a big part of our practice. So I'm glad they're still enforceable in some states, or I'd have much less work to do. There you go. <laughs> so um, in any event, a typical non-compete would be structured like this in, in an employment agreement. It would say something like, after you terminate employment with the practice, for a two-year period, you will not practice medicine or potentially, you know, it could be specified pain management or anesthesia, the particular subspecialty, but you will not practice medicine within a 10-mile radius of any existing offices of the practice. That's a typical non-compete or restrictive covenant. And there's variations on that. I mean, two years is the most common term, for after employment, I've seen one year, I've seen three years. Um, the only time you see something like five years is if you're buying a practice and the sell and, and the seller agrees not to compete for five years because you're paying a lot of money for that. The mileage piece of it varies significantly based upon where you are. So, for example, if you're in Manhattan, I've literally seen it by number of blocks. Hmm. Okay. The largest I've ever seen is in rural Texas for 100 miles because mm. apparently there was no other, there's nothing near there. But more typical, if you're in a typical urban area like the city of Philadelphia, it'll be two to three miles. If you're in a suburban area, it could be five to 10 miles. And if you're a more rural area, it'll be maybe 15 to 20 miles. That's kind of a rule of thumb uh, in what you typically see. And then the biggest question is, 
are they enforceable? Because you're going to have one in your contract. If you, I've had doctors coming out of residency and fellowship tell me, you know, I don't believe in them. I'm not going to sign with the practice that has one. Then you might as well just try to start your own practice because you're going to, you're, you're going to find it tough to find a job. And in most states, including Pennsylvania, there aren't strict rules on what is enforceable and what is not. Instead, it's up to a judge or a jury as to what's, quote, reasonable in time and geographic restriction. You don't know, and that's one of the biggest problems, and before I touched on the deterrence issue before, but the general trend is that judges don't like to restrict people from working somewhere. So some practices get around that by saying, okay, you know, fine, if you, if you, we won't say you can't work at another pain practice within 10 miles, but if you leave and join another pain practice within 10 miles, you owe us what's called liquidated damages of $300,000. So if you write us a check or your new practice writes us a check for $300,000, you can go work wherever you want. And at that point, would that physician be free to take their patient base with them? Yes. I mean, you can't take a patient list that belongs to the practice. Yeah. But in today's world with social media, people are going to know where you are. So, yeah, typically the patients can go wherever they want. That's always the case. You right. just sometimes can't solicit them or take a patient list. But the patients are going to go there. So, yeah, you're basically paying $300,000 for the right to stay in the area. And I've seen situations where people negotiate that down, hmm. where if the employer wants you bad enough, they will agree, say, in that example of 300 you know, maybe they agree to pay the practice 200 and we'll call it even. And everybody goes on their merry way. Presumably because they don't want to litigate. Exactly. That's a pain because litigation problem. is expensive. And my partner's a litigator, but he talks people out of litigation all the time. Because does it make sense in that example for the doctor to pay his lawyer $100,000, for the practice to pay their lawyer $100,000, you know, and end up, settling anyway, you know, on the doorsteps of going to court. So, yeah, it behooves both parties to settle because you don't want to pay an exorbitant amount of legal fees. And so restrictive covenants are typically the most negotiated item in employment agreements. A lot of it comes down to leverage. And a lot of what we've talked about today uh, comes down to leverage in that if you're either joining a practice or becoming a partner in a practice, where it's the first time they're hiring somebody or the first time they're beginning bringing in a partner versus they just hired three people yesterday or they just brought in a partner a year for the last three years. If they've done it many, many times, they're not going to want to upset the apple cart and they're not going to really change things for you. Whereas if they haven't done it that often or you bring a great different subspecialty or you're the first one they're hiring, you should have a lot of leverage. Right. Uh, either way... You know, I can help explain that to you. And even if you don't get a lot of changes, at least you'll understand it and have full disclosure on what's happening. Now, another thing to keep in mind, if you're not in Pennsylvania, um, there are states where restrictive covenants post-employment are unenforceable, meaning it's certainly in any state the employer could say, while you're working for us, it's full time. You can't moonlight without our approval. You can't work anywhere. That's in any state. But in certain states, if you leave your practice, they're not enforceable for physicians. And those states currently include California, 
Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Alabama, Arkansas, Rhode Island, and New Mexico. So in those seven states, by statute, the practice cannot restrict you from leaving and working anywhere you want. Okay, so if you get a contract in one of those states for employment and there's a restrictive covenant, they shouldn't be in there. Interesting. So um, does that also mean that if I'm in California, if I'm in Los Angeles and I'm working for a practice and I build up a very big, robust practice and I'm not a partner, but I'm a hardworking associate and I've got a good patient base and um, I don't like the way the partnership is kind of going or treating me, I could literally walk across the street, hang out my own shingle, bring all those patients with me and, and have my own thing? Yes. That's why in California, for example, the buy-ins are typically lower. Because mm. if the practice wants some exorbitant buy-in from somebody, they're just going to leave and go somewhere else. So that's where you don't see buy-ins and buy-outs as, as high in California. And that would be true in any of those of states that. you just listed. Yeah. Now, California and Massachusetts, for many years, it's been like that. Okay. All the other states I mentioned, they've been within the last couple of years. Interesting. Now, you can have, contrast that with this, if you buy a practice in those states or once you're a partner in those states, then you can have a legally binding non-compete. That's legit. Okay. Okay. But it's only while you're an employee. Now, let me mention a few other states that have little nuances. In Delaware, technically, you can't have a non-compete, meaning you can't actually restrict somebody from practicing somewhere, meaning you can't go out and get an injunction and stop somebody from practicing or prevent from somebody from practicing somewhere. But you're allowed to have what I mentioned before, what's called a liquidated damages provision. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to say... You know, you can do it, but if you do it, you owe us this, okay? In Connecticut, another eastern state, this is pretty new. There's two parameters by statute now in Connecticut. One is it can only be for one year, and it can't be more than 15 miles from the primary site. Hmm. It's that specific. And it also can apply if you're terminated without cause. So... If for because in most contracts, for example, even if the practice terminates you without cause, arguably the restrictive covenant applies, which doesn't sound fair. Like I try to negotiate that in every contract, not always successfully that if sure, if you quit or you get fired for cause, we can understand that. But if the practices comes to you one day and says, we don't like you anymore, we don't like how you dress, or even if we don't think you're a good doctor or we can't afford you or we don't like your spouse you shouldn't be able to practice wherever you want. Yeah, And but, in states where that's up to the discretion of a judge, correct. presumably a judge would be sympathetic to that. Correct. And even like in New York State, there was a case about 15 years ago where that was the finding. You can't rely on that, but that most likely would be the case. And in one other state, two other states, in Utah, <laughs> um, you can't go more than one year. Hmm. And in West Virginia, it's not applicable. It's similar to Connecticut. It's not applicable if you're terminated by the employer for any reason. And it can't be more than one year and 30 miles. And there is proposed litigation in New Jersey that would make restrictive covenants unenforceable. It's just proposed. So clearly the trend in the country is to not enforce them. But in most states, including Pennsylvania, they are arguably still enforceable and very important and cause a lot of people to not able to take other jobs mm -hmm. and even interview other places if 
there is a deterrent in there saying you can't compete in the area. So it's one of the definitely one of the most um, contentious issues that you'll find in an employment agreement. And I've, there's all sorts of variations like it wouldn't apply the first six months or the mileage would be more the longer you've been there. I've seen everything, hmm. but it's just it's something that's, you know, hopefully negotiable. And you clearly want to understand that no matter what state you're going to. And just for my own information, is that the kind of thing where you've seen um, maybe bigger? So there's, you know, in anesthesia, for example, there's what they call the anesthesia management companies, the big boys yep. who are big yep. employers. Yep. Presumably they would be incented, incentivized to want to make an example out of somebody who was going to work for a competitor down the street. So they would be more likely to litigate a clause like that, even in a even in a state where maybe it was a long shot because presumably they have a legal department and it might be a an item in the contract that you should think long and hard about and take very seriously because the the legal backing of an organization like that is very different from if you are the third partner in a two-partner practice and they're trying to help patients and they don't have a legal department. Exactly. And they're I, less likely to litigate. Yep, I totally agree with you. And some of the bigger groups that are maybe national maybe headquartered in Tennessee or Florida or wherever. And the contract was say if there's litigation, it happens in, in that venue and you yeah. might have to hire a lawyer. You may work in Pennsylvania for a company that's based in Tennessee mm. and have to go to court in Tennessee. It's even worse. But you're right about making an example of somebody. Yeah. Um, and even if, let's say, the anesthesia group loses the contract with the hospital, okay, and the hospital wants to hire all the doctors, that could be a legal battle, hmm. you know. And if if there's everyone has a non-compete and the anesthesia group doesn't have a non-compete in their hospital contract, the hospital may come to you and say, "We want to hire you," and and you may be, you may not be able to do that. Hmm. So yeah, it isn't something you want to just not worry about, and right. you want to at least know what you're getting into, even if it may not be negotiable. And I think the important thing to emphasize here is if you're thinking about a transition in employment, get state-specific advice, yes. state-specific qualified legal advice to yes. weigh in on the viability of the restrictive exactly. covenants to see how much it should impact. You. Yes. And it doesn't, I mean, you can obviously get a lawyer in that state, but you don't necessarily need to. We have a, in our office, we have a very good resource that's updated annually. In addition to all the other research services we belong to that gives you the up-to-date, you know lowdown on what the specific situation is in in a specific state and even the, the other thing is even in a, in a specific state each county might be different mm -hmm. and each judge may have a different point of view so you never know for sure but the one clear thing is you want to avoid litigation because right. that's extremely costly and you want to know what your options are before you think about leaving one place and going to another place sure with regards to just general advice, you know, there's there's a lot of people out there uh, who I, I actually recently engaged an attorney professionally for, I think, the first time for, on, over an intellectual property tiff. And we're still waiting to see how that's going to pan out. But there's a lot of physicians out there who, other than even like malpractice, would have never thought about hiring a lawyer. So mm -hmm. what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's just trying to understand yep. how does the legal profession fit into the practice of medicine and how, how to navigate that landscape. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point of an intellectual property issue in lawyer because I know nothing about that. Okay. <laughs> and the law these days is almost as subspecialized as medicine in that 
healthcare lawyers know healthcare, and intellectual property lawyers know intellectual property, and patent lawyers know patents, and criminal lawyers. So if you think you need legal advice, don't talk to your sister-in-law or brother-in-law who does something completely different. Right. Talk to a healthcare lawyer. Okay, next thing. A lot of my clients that are residents and fellows never used a lawyer for anything, and that makes sense. You know, maybe they don't even have a will yet, um, and they're not even sure they need a lawyer. And they come to me, and they ask for advice, and I tell them, look, I can't promise I'm going to get significant changes in your contract. I can promise you if you engage me, you will understand everything in the contract. I will answer all the questions you have. I will do my due diligence and do the best I can to make any changes at a, at an, at a cost-effective rate, um, and that I've had many clients come to me after they've had problems saying they wish they had used me from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I question I get is, well, when should I get you involved? And obviously, you don't need to talk to me before you go on interviews. But once you go on interviews, if you've narrowed your choices down and have one or two or more practices that are interested in you, or let's say you've picked out one and you get a term sheet from them or anything in writing other than just a verbal, that's when you want to think about, should I contact you? Because I've had situations where people maybe have signed a letter of intent or a term sheet um, before they sign the actual contract. And even though it may not be legally binding, if you've signed a term sheet, and typically you won't get a term sheet or a letter of intent from a private practice, but from an institution or a hospital or a larger anesthesia group, they might do it that way because they don't want to spend the time and the effort on legal fees on drafting a contract if they can't even figure out the bullet points. But if you sign something or agree on a term sheet that has you know, a starting salary of 250 and a couple other bullet points, and then you talk to me and you decide, you know what, I'm going to ask for more money, the group is not going to be happy with that because they feel you've already agreed to the items on the bullet point list. So what I tell people, if they send me the term sheet of their bullet point, I tell them, look, if you're 100% comfortable with the items on this list, that's fine. Go for it. You don't need me to do anything. You can sign it and then send me the contract. Um, but if, if you're not totally sure or in situations where you don't get a term sheet or um, a letter of intent and they just send you the employment agreement and there's mistakes on there, let's say there's a mistake, typos, or they told you in the interview your salary would be 300 and it says 280 and it's just a mistake. And you go back to them and you email them or you call them and say, hey, there's a mistake. It should be this, should be that. You want to let them know when you talk to them that you're probably going to have a lawyer look at it. So this isn't my final comments because I've seen issues where the doctor on their own without incurring any costs will go back and raise eight or ten things. Mm -hmm. The practice will make the changes on the employment agreement, send it to them and saying, here, sign here. Then they send it to me. I look at it. I point out six or seven things that might be changed either in the language or the substance of it or both. And they go back to them and then they get ticked off because they thought you already negotiated everything. And now they're saying, wait a minute. Right. So you want to be clear with them. If you go back to them, which is fine before you go to come to me, that 
you haven't engaged a lawyer, these are some items that you just wanted to discuss before you engage the lawyer. Makes sense. So that's some general advice on that end. Because if they're not willing um, to flex on that, then it doesn't make sense for, for a, a physician to pay you. Exactly. Don't have me look at it. Right. I've also had people have me look at two or three contracts because they can't decide, which I think is kind of silly. Like, <laughs> you decide where you want to go. It's more important, this is some more general advice, that you're happy, that you're going to a location that you and your spouse if you have one like that you like the area you trust the group you trust the doctors you're comfortable then worry about the details of the contract do it that way and you know the details of the contract typically will be less important the other thing to keep in mind is if there's some sort of recruitment agreement separate from the contract so in some situations a hospital will provide an incentive to an anesthesia group um to hire somebody. And it's a three-party agreement between the practice, the doctor, and the hospital. And there's provisions in there that basically say, as long as you stay in the area for a certain period of time, you won't have to pay any of the money back, any signing bonus, any relocation allowance, any money they're funding for your salary. So you wanna make sure you have a lawyer look at that too to see what your obligations are. The other thing to keep in mind of general advice is Make sure when you're done, because I've had this issue come up many times, make sure that when you're done, you get a fully executed agreement signed not just by you, but by the company or the practice. And because you may lose it or you may not, you know, now with computers, you'll probably keep it on your computer, but send a copy to your lawyer so they keep it too. And your financial planner. And your financial planner. So that from a legal standpoint, the main thing is that when you call me up two or three years from now and say, you know what, I might, I think I might want to leave and I don't remember what the non-compete says and I'm not sure if I have to give 90 days notice or 120 or if I can terminate at any time during the year or if it's just as of the end of the year and you never sent me the signed contract and there were three different versions and I'm not sure which one was signed. The last thing in the world you want to do two or three years after you've been there is ask the practice administrator or one of the partners, do you happen to have a copy of my contract around? I, I need it for my estate planning yeah. because they know there's a problem and right. you're leaving. Right. So just make sure that you get a fully executed agreement back so that you have it for future reference, for legal needs, for accounting needs, for financial planning needs. So Makes a lot of sense. So. Uh, in closing, maybe we could wrap it up with a story of a specific instance, either working with a, a physician or a group where you, you were able to, through the engagement, bring a specific insight that totally changed the dynamics of what the expected outcome was, uh, where you were able to really help somebody in a way that they didn't expect or okay. get somebody more money or point out a huge gap in a contract or, or something like that. That's a good question. Let me. There's one that comes to mind immediately that I felt really, really good about. I can't remember the specialty because it's been probably a year or so, but it was a physician and she was pretty kind of, some physicians are very entrepreneurial, very aggressive. They want everything, they expect everything. This particular physician was kind of laid back and kind of meek and felt really uncomfortable asking for anything. She was just really happy to have the job and she didn't even realize you could negotiate. And we talked and I encouraged her because she did, I don't, I didn't negotiate it directly with the other party. She negotiated with the doctor. I encouraged her. I gave her a pep talk. 
and she asked for it and she got a $10,000 signing bonus. Nice. And she was thrilled. And I think her invoice, her total invoice of, of amount that she owed me was about $500. So that was the best $500 she ever spent. She sent all her resident friends to me. And I felt really good because it took me about 30 seconds to recommend that to her. Mm -hmm. And she was really hesitant to ask. She's like, well, it's a really good salary. I I just feel uncomfortable. And I said, the worst thing that'll happen is they'll say, sorry, we can't do this. And make me the bad guy. Say, my attorney suggests that I ask for this. He's seen this and other... So I, I felt great, which, which was, you know, that's you, a great you can see my smile. The, the, a, the listeners uh, can't, but it, yep. it, it felt really, really good. Knowing that in a yeah. few minutes you were able to provide a 2,000% return on investment on exactly. that review fee, that's, that's got to make you feel good. Um, and in a couple other situations that are a little bit different, more with experienced docs that were buying into practices, really the, the – the feeling that in a couple instances where they didn't necessarily realize it was a terrible deal. Mm-hmm. And in in one instance, you know, they did walk away and went to something that they're much happier at. Mm. And in another instance, they were able to significantly negotiate a much better buy-in deal. And the other doctors who were a lot older and set in their ways and had a much different deal years ago kind of saw the light. Um, so I was extremely happy that they were able to negotiate a much more reasonable dollar amount of the buy-in and structure that kind of everybody went away happy. And so that was also something that, you know, I'll always remember. Great. Well, these insights have been really valuable for me and for our listeners out there. So thank you very much for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey, Justin here. This may shock you to learn, but I am actually not a full-time podcaster. I also run a financial planning company called Quantify Planning, where I work closely with anesthesia and pain docs to build and implement customized financial plans. If you're interested in working with a financial planner who knows many of the ins and outs of your profession, shoot me an email or head on over to quantifyplanning.com for more information. If you're a resident or fellow, I can also offer you a free student loan analysis if you're interested, but there might be a waiting list, so check out the link over there to see. If you're interested in learning more about the topics we discussed today, head over to anesthesiosuccess.com to join our community of residents and attendings and others to ask a question or get more free resources. If and only if you like this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the Anesthesia Success Podcast.